Today's episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Yes, Long Cat Media presents Madame Magenta, Sonos Mystica. Chapter 20. Greetings, fans! Magenta here, bringing you audiobook realness and help from the spirit world. And talking of spirits, let's get straight into Cocktail of the Day! Cocktail time! Cocktail time! Cocktail time! Cocktail time! I'm being ruthlessly efficient today, Bernard. You are, aren't you? You Let's jibber jabber! Straight in there! Yes. Cocktail of the day. There we go. So today's cocktail is called the Mockery Manor. So we're doing a bit of cross-advertising here. Oh, yes. Those mocker, Mockery Manor bastards, they better return the favour. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I'm, I don't think they will, will they? No. No, they're very stuck I think up they think they're better than us. Maybe with all their production values and so oh, on. Oh, look at me. I've got high production values. Oh, good for them. So anyway, this is based on our second favourite podcast, Mockery Manor, yes, which is an audio fiction mystery thriller thing. How do you describe it? It's sort of dramedy type thing set in a theme park. Yes, it's it's heating up as well, isn't it? Yes, it's getting rather interesting. It's and but it's I'm I'm baffled personally. You've got a few theories, though, haven't you, Bernard, as to what the hell is going on? Well, yes, I I do. Now, do do you want to hear my theory? No, go on then. I think uh, it's werewolves. I think the answer is werewolves. Werewolves. Yes. Well, there, there was that Love Wolf song. Do you remember? Um, there was a song yeah, about the I'd be your love wolf, something like that. Yeah. Yes. And then they, and they did a tweet where they said there might be clues in the lyrics. So I think... What, I think, in those lyrics? Uh, yes, I think so. And then, so I think that means that uh, the, the two main characters, the twins, they're both werewolves and they come from a long line oh of werewolves. Oh, my God. If it's werewolves, I'm going to be so disappointed. Oh, do you not think That's, it is? That would be shit. Well, you haven't had any suggestion of werewolves, and we're on episode eight now, aren't we? Yeah, seven, eight? We've just had seven, and the eight is to My to God, if, if we haven't had a hint of supernatural activity except a bloody song, and then there's a sodding werewolf all of a sudden. I'm holding out for a werewolf. Oh, God. That sounds like an 80s song as well. I need a werewolf. I'm holding out for, for a werewolf till the end of the night. Anyway, yeah, you get the idea. So anyway, the podcast is based in 80s Britain, so the cocktail is 80s Britain-themed, which everyone thinks was a fun decade, don't they? Yes. As long as you didn't live through it and don't have any coal miners in the family. So, right, here are the ingredients. It's a panda pop, flavour blue, (laughs) coconut cream, peach schnapps. Everyone drank peach schnapps then. Yes. And a little fizz provided by some baby sham. Do you remember baby sham? The little deer. Yeah, the little deer, the little shallow glasses. You know, I always thought you could feed it to babies. But I recently learned no, you can't. Oh, dear. Our daughter had a far more exciting infanthood than most as a result. Good Lord. Anyway, it's disgusting, isn't it? This cocktail. It's pretty nasty. But aren't most cocktails? I mean, really, cocktails are just. Gross. They're for people who miss playing with their food and making perfume out of shit you find in the garden. Did you ever do that as a child, Bernard? Oh, yes, yes. All sorts of marvellous concoctions we made out of twigs and old fag packets. And yes, and we haven't stopped really, have we? No, not really. No, little bit of philosophy for you there. Yeah. <laughs> all right, let's get on with the book. Here we go. Chapter 
14 stroke 15. Okay. <laughs> is, is that really what you've called it? Yes. Well, you'll see in a way, I, I skipped 13 because it's unlucky. Yes. But then really, the next chapter after 14 was the real 14 yes. because I'd skipped 13. Yes. So I called that 14. So in a way, this is 15 if we're going on from that and 14 if we have if we did put it as 13 originally. Do you see what I mean? I'm not going to explain it further. Just rewind if you don't understand. Listen to it if you want. I'll listen to it later. Here's the new plan. Cut out the middleman. Walk into the headquarters of a charity and just give them the painting. Not bad, eh? Brilliant in its simplicity. I'll sign a bit of paper or something that says, on behalf of Derek, I pledge this picture to name of charity, then I'll hand it over and it's done. The end. I can't see why the heavenly bureaucrats would have a problem with that. Small problem. I probably need something to prove it belongs to Derek and it's not stolen and something to show I'm his widow, neither of which I have. But fuck it. Even if I end up shoving it in their hands and running, Derek will have given it to charity. He can return to the other side with a cosmic account full of points and can spend the rest of eternity riding speedboats dressed in a tuxedo or whatever it is they do. Now, I'm not planning to go into Oxfam HQ because they're big business, which means I'd be tied up in red tape before you could say, mad woman with pilfered goods. We really haven't got time for that. I mean, I could just hand it into a local Oxfam shop. But they'll probably price it at 10 pence and flog it to some Morrissey-loving student with a taste for the depressing, which won't do Derek any good at all. And then he'd come and haunt me. Bernard would be upset, I'd be irritated beyond belief, and then I'd have to hire an exorcist. Derek would no doubt take great umbrage against such a move, and then it'd get really messy. So I need some fresh, idealistic young charity where the receptionist is also the marketing department, cleaner and CEO, and where they're a bit more grateful of potentially dubious donations. Derek, I inquire while I'm searching on my smartphone for appropriate charities, exactly how much time do we have left? Derek looks briefly panic-stricken. Um, what time did I operate in your house, he asks. Good God, you'd think he'd be keeping an eye on the clock. Honestly, the last couple of days have made me realise how lacking in the brain department my ex is. All style over substance, that man. All elocuted vowels and hairy-handed machismo combined with the hysteria of a West End Wendy with no friggin' sense. You popped up while we were having dinner, I said. So about six? Then I've got until six today, Derek says, turning white. Well, for a ghost. For a white man who's also a ghost. He turned white. Whiter. Whiter. I checked the time on my phone. That's just under three hours, I say. Well then, we better get a move on. I check my phone again. Google Maps has identified the nearest small charity HQ. It's a Marxist cafe that accepts donations in support of the people's liberation. Liberation from what? Basic hygiene, I expect. Bloody hippies. <laughs> yes, although we're quite socialist ourselves. Yes, we are. Yeah. If we take the underground and then walk, we can be there in 30 minutes. So that's the end of that chapter. How yes. long is that? Not very long. <sighs> Better right. do another one, Let's I think. Let's do another one. Okay, the next one is... Oh, God, the next one's bloody endless. Oh, is it? Yeah, settle in, everyone. Right, right, here we here go. We chapter go. 15, 16. Give yourselves a cup of... Did we have a cocktail We today? did, with the Mockery Manor was the cocktail. Yeah, that's right. I drank it very quickly. Yeah, so I see. Just so I wouldn't have to taste it for too long. All right. Yeah, give yourself another Mockery Manor and, and settle back. 
Okay, here we go. Chapter 15, stroke 16. Well, it wasn't open. That's the thing with small charities. They keep the same hours as those weird little independent bookshops where everything seems to depend on the whim of the smelly old sod in charge. Sorry, can't open up today. I'm too busy drying out my cannabis plants and being above such petty concerns as commerce and basic consideration for other people's schedules. God, aren't hippies awful? Even if they are the sole customers for half my online stock, I do an excellent trade in incense and hemp accessories. The next charity on our list is an animal charity. It looks equally dubious, although according to Google, it's run by an evolutionary scientist. One imagines scientists are more organized than Marxist anarcho-feminist eco-warriors. Although not necessary, he's probably a hippie scientist. I mean, really, someone needs to tell the whole lot of them that their causes would be taken a lot more seriously if they didn't wear such shapeless asexual clothes and sport such unkempt facial hair, including the women. Although it's a bit rich, me saying that. You should see my tash. And I can't really blame lockdown, either. I just, I've just decided a luxuriant tash is the way to go. And tracksuits. I'm wearing a lot of tracksuits. Yes, you are. I can't really blame lockdown for that, either, can I? No, you like a good tracksuit, don't well, you? you know, remember when velour tracksuits came in? Yes. Well, I just thought this is the perfect combination of sort of hippie-style clothing... And fitness. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't really do fitness. But it does go nicely with your collection of toweling turbans. It does, doesn't it? So, yeah. All right, let's get on with this. On the bus on the way to the Ugly Animal Protection Society, which exists, doesn't it, Bernard? That's true, yes, the ugly animals, yes. They yes, do. yes, so look it up on Google. It's a very, it's, a, it's an excellent cause. And uh, some hilarious pictures of fish. On the bus on the way to the Ugly Animal Protection Society, I start reading the interweb blurb, mainly so that I don't have to look at Derek's tense face. As charities go, it's rather jolly. God, aren't most of them depressing, enough to put you off donating. It's based on the idea that cuddly animals such as the panda... Oh, that's appropriate, isn't it? There's panda pop in, oh, our, yes, in my cocktail. Based on the idea that cuddly animals such as pandas get far more in the way of attention and money than, for instance, the repellent and endangered blobfish, who resembles a conservative MP, so I'm not surprised he's unpopular. What a pity conservative MPs aren't equally as endangered. That's something I can get behind, not endangering conservative MP. Oh, well, but, but, um, the, the charity. Yeah, yeah. As an individual who has reaped the benefits of being immensely physically attractive, I can still feel sympathy, if not empathy, for the plight of the facially unfortunate. At the same time, I wouldn't want to have to touch one. A blobfish, that is. Not an unattractive human being. Although equally. No, no, no. No, I'll, I'll, tu I'll touch. I'll touch anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Just send him round. Sorry, Bernard. Well, you know. At 4.30pm, one and a half hours away from Derek running out of mojo, we find ourselves on the doorstep of a typical London Victorian terrace. UAPS is written in biro on a scrap of paper under a doorbell marked B. I press it and wait, wondering what breed of unwashed lefty is about to open the door. After a brief pause, the door opens to reveal a chap. A surprisingly appealing chap, who I've worked with in the interim, haven't I? In the last, since I wrote this book, I've worked with this chap. Yes, yes. He, he is surprisingly appealing. And he's, he's a big fan of uh, fortune-telling, of course. Yes, of course. Despite being a scientist, maybe you should start doubting his science credentials, to be honest. Anyway, he's no hippie, that much is obvious. He's one of those Philip Schofield types. Eternally boyish, kind eyes, a ready smile, the sort you don't trust. 
No one's that nice. I'm on to you, Philip Schofield. Hello, I say, batting my eyelashes. I would like to make a donation to your fine charity, if I may. Might as well get straight to the point. Philip looks taken aback. I imagine a donation is a bit of a first for you, APS, and ushers me into what is, in actual fact, quite clearly his house rather than an office space. Lovely, lovely, he's burbling. Oh, he's Irish, isn't he? He is. Shall I do an Irish accent? Well... Uh, give me a give me a, a bit of an Irish accent, then I'll replicate ah, it. Ah, lovely to oh, be so sure. Oh, lovely, lovely. Ah, lovely, ah, lovely, lovely. He's burbling excitedly. I've had her fickle, Where did you hear, Peters? Have you been to the Turks? I'm afraid I don't recall seeing you. That's not bad, is it? Yeah. Have, you, have you seen this online? Her on the telly, perhaps? Is, is that a bit... Well, it's a bit, little bit hard to understand what you're saying. Oh, it's fine. The Tellier, maybe it's not as much of a Mickey Mouse organisation as I'd hoped. Shit. He's got one of those lovely soft Irish accents. The sort that sounds like you should be sat in front of a log fire telling long-winded folk stories rather than the sort that forces you into a van at gunpoint. Oh dear, did I do the... <laughs> I think you did rather do the forcing into a van at gunpoint accent. And is that a bit racist as well? <laughs> oh, we come up against so much... Well, it's, it's a talking point, isn't it? it certainly That's is. the thing about my podcast. You can afterwards have a good old chat with whoever you're stuck in the house with about whether I've crossed a line or not. Good fun. It was, well, conversations are important, Bernard. That's true. Communication oh so important, especially at a time like Starting this. Starting these conversations is a public duty. So there we go. Philip continues his blarney as he ferries me into his office-come-living room. His bonhomie is making me uneasy. I hope he's not a serial killer. Wait, so he, this is more of a... A softer eye. he managed. You're not even hurting, coot. I don't prepare to your questions. How's that? I still can't understand a word you're saying. Can I get your hot beverage? And please take it. It's all right, isn't it? I'm rather pleased with that. He gestures towards the sofa. There's a giant rat on it. Who don't mind that. He trills, removing the stiff monstrosity and putting it on an occasional table next to what looks like a luminous snot in a jar. That's a fine example of the Cuban Salanitan. Isn't it a beaut? And it still retains its original gauchy odour. See, it's getting better, isn't it? Yes. I'd assumed it was coming off of him, the goatee odour, although I suppose he does look fairly clean and respectable, unlike his house, which is crawling with grotesque taxidermied animals. Most of the services have something objectionable squatting on them. I focus on Philip in order to avoid the beady, glazed eyes of a hundred minging beasts. Look, Philip, I don't have much time, I'm afraid, I say, getting down to business. I just need to give you the donation and go. I'm very busy. I have an appointment with my dentist. Loose crown, accident on a diving board, been on holiday, magaloof, I supply, unnecessarily. He cries, slapping his forehead. His niceness is starting to remind me of Bernard. He ushers me onto the sofa once more and sits down in an adjacent hardback chair. He goes in for a handshake. He's absolutely determined to do pleasantries, so I better humour him. Magenta, I say, my teeth gritted as I shake his warm hand. I'm very conscious of the time ticking away and of Derek hopping up and down next to me. Still, we've got just over an hour left. That should be plenty. Let me show you what I wish to donate, I add briskly. I gingerly sit down on the goatee-smelling sofa and pull my bag onto my lap. I take the painting out, unwrap the protective linen, show it to Philip Stroke Simon, I can't remember what his name is, who says, oh yes, oh, politely, well, he goes, <laughs> and place it on the coffee table in front of us, using the edge of it to nudge a stuffed, surprised-looking lizard out of the way. 
I'd be surprised too if I had a face like that and someone took an interest in my preservation. I know it doesn't look like much, but it's worth a lot of money. A lot. So I suggest you get it valued and then sell it, and then you can put the money towards saving these things, I say, gesturing at the army of ugliness scattered round the room. Simon Stroke Philip looks a bit lost for words. Simon Stroke Philip, that's, that's a whole different uh, <laughs> That's an interesting podcast. bit of slash fiction, isn't it? Yes. That's tremendously generous. Oh, no, sorry, Irish accent. That's tremendously generous, you know. He says after a pause, his brow furrowing. But um, there's probably some kind of a process we have to go through if you're wanting to make an unusual donation. To be perfectly honest with you, Magneto, I haven't got a clue how it works. And I wouldn't want you to give me this lovely-looking picture before I know what to do with it. I ignore Simon Stroke Phillips' good-natured bluster and focus on finding something in my bag. It's a sheet of paper torn from my 2014 diary on which I pledged the painting to the UAPS. I did it on the bus. I had Derek add his signature by using his telekinetic poltergeist skills in a felt-tip pen. I tell you what, if you want to seat to yourself on public transport, communicating with your invisible travel companion and seemingly levitating a pen is the way to do it. Ghost telekinesis isn't the most precise of skills, though. The paper looks like it's been attacked by a toddler. But at least Derek has personally made some kind of mark which I assume has symbolic and astral significance, if not legal validity. As long as the paper then physically passes from me to this ecology chap, perhaps the universe will acknowledge that ownership of the painting has also passed from one to the other. Who knows? I've been running on pure instincts and guesswork. It's not like I carry a mystical grimoire around in my handbag. I have to say, I feel a bit of a ninny handing him a scrap of paper covered in scrawls and saying it amounts to a document of ownership. Simon Stroke Philip assumes a politely blank face and folds the paper very carefully and respectfully before putting it in his shirt pocket. So, I say, the painting's yours. Good luck to you and your funny-looking animals. I start to get up, feeling that maybe that's it, my job is done. Pretty easy, really. Derek is looking a bit nonplussed. Is that how you say it? Nonplussed? Uh, nonplussed, I think. Oh, is it? Uh, well, I'm not sure. Maybe if you're giving it a little nice little French flair. Nonplussed. Nonplussed. How would you say it in an Irish accent? Nonplussed. There we go. Derek is looking a bit as is Simon Philip. Maybe he expected to get the cosmic equivalent of a Vegas slot machine win when the deed was finally done. Flashing lights, sirens, women in bikinis. But nope, nothing. I suppose he'll have to wait until he goes back to the other side to cash in his chips. What's to say he won't just take the cash and fuck off with it? Derek blurts, stopping me in my tracks. How do we know we've just given it to charity, not to some ruthless bastard? I suppose he's got a point. You will pass the money on to the ugly animals, I say to Simon, who has moved uncertainly towards the door in preparation for my exit. He turns to me warily. He's probably a bit scared I'm going to suddenly drop trouser and drag my ass on his floor and then refuse to leave his house or put a lizard on my head and start singing the national anthem. He smiles kindly. Of course I will, Magneto, he says. Thank you. The animals and I truly appreciate it. He's talking very slowly. Oh dear, was that too fast? The animals and I truly appreciate it with a lot of sincere eye contact. He thinks I'm completely off my rocker, which would rather suggest that he won't sell the painting. No doubt he's such an irritatingly good person. He'd see it as exploiting the vulnerable. It'll sit ignored in a cupboard somewhere, and I'll become an anecdote to tell his charity mates on the dangers of an open house policy. I'm not having that. I'll have to scare him into compliance. It's the only way. 
another illusion, then, with some serious theatrical welly. I draw myself up to my full height, my bosom heaving upwards like jewel whales breaking the ocean's surface, in an attempt to regain a little bit of gravitas. I need more than a thank you, Simon, I say softly, deeply, dropping my eyelids to half-mast as I gaze at him. I'm hoping it looks vaguely mystical rather than like I'm having a stroke. I need to believe your promise, I continue. Really believe it. He's looking unnerved again, not half as unnerved as he's about to become. To my surprise, I feel a little thrill run through me at the thought of his imminent discomfort. God, isn't power corrupting? Who'd have thought? Now, this is what I've figured out thus far about the art of glamour. The victim actually does half the work. When I glamoured people into thinking I was Keanu or Derek, I merely filled the air with visual suggestions. Then everyone else took over to a certain extent. I led them to a mental space containing certain ideas and they supplied the smaller details. For instance, Helga commented on how cool she thought Keanu's beanie hat was. But I hadn't visualised that he was wearing one. I don't even know what one is. A hat shaped like a bean? How peculiar. See, so it's those who are glamoured who supply the detail. But I still have control over the overall effect. My gaze alights on the giant rat thing on the table, the Selenodon, and I picture it slowly twitching into life. Mystical juju fills the space. Magical swirly whirls accompany the scrape of claws against wood, the snuffling of its rodenty muzzle. I look up from my work. Bloody Simon hasn't even bloody noticed it. He's standing there, totally oblivious, assuring me he really appreciates my donation, he fully intends to do his best for the animals, blah, blah, blah. Don't tell me, Simon. Tell them, I purr, pointing a finger at the lizard on the table between us. I picture it lifting its head and flicking its long tongue before slowly crawling across the polished surface. Simon gasps and staggers backwards, his eyes wide. He's seen that one, then. Thank Christ for that. Simon looks at me to see if I've clocked the lizard moving, and I smile knowingly, mysteriously. His eyes widen a little more. I point my finger at the stuffed snake on the mantelpiece, which slithers out of its jar. I cock an eyebrow and mentally remove the pins from several beetles, sending them scurrying onto and across the floor. I laugh maniacally, and the jar of snot pulsates. Shall I make it glow more vibrantly? Yes, why not? It turns an eerie green like a particularly disgusting lava lamp. I then turn my attention to a large fat bird with a click of my fingers and make it snap its beak and fly laboriously around the room with its stunted wings. Then I realise it's a dodo. They were flightless, weren't they? So I abruptly let the dodo crash to the floor, practically at Simon's feet. He lets out a small scream and turns on his heel, running terrified for the door. Oh shit, I've gone too far. I reflexively fling my arm out and the door slams shut with a loud bang. Blimey, no visualisation illusion this time. I've effected an actual physical change. Simon jerks to a stop, frozen with horror in front of the closed door. The power. Zounds, the incredible power! Then I notice Derek. Still in an exaggerated pushing position, the ghostly veins sticking out on his forehead from the effort. <laughs> it was Derek. He'd poltergeisted the door closed. It wasn't me after all. Whatevs. Derek positions himself protectively in front of the door. Simon's unknowing hand swims through Derek's torso, but before he can effect a decent grip on the doorknob, a shiver runs up his arm and he instinctively pulls back. 
Simon staggers backwards and turns to face me, his face a mask of terror. What do you want? Oh dear, maybe I'm overdoing this. He might have a heart attack at this rate, and even if he doesn't, if he thinks I'm evil, he might just burn the painting. A small gear change is needed. A bit less Macbeth, a bit more bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. I bathe the room in crisp morning sunlight. Cherry blossom gently falls from the sky stroke ceiling, a few petals landing on the shoulders of Simon's grey fleece. Now, now, I say gently, hush yourself, dearie. I make a charming little bluebird appear and fly to my shoulder. The Selenidon smiles and chuckles in an avuncular fashion from his position on the table. Simon looks no less terrified. The dodo waddles up to Simon, opens its beak, and stutters adorably. Don't be afraid, Simon. Cute. But it's not working. Simon still looks like he's passing a pineapple. Did you put acid in my tea? He husks, eyes wide. Oh, for goodness sake, we haven't even been drinking tea. I click my fingers once. There we go of Foley again. A mere theatricality, probably borrowed from Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and drop the illusion. The room appears as it was before, because, of course, it never actually changed. No, I haven't given you anything. A magical, I say. Terrifying, isn't it? Imagine what else I can do, I add ominously. For instance, I could sell him a Yule rune basket at a horribly inflated price. I could make his house stink of patchouli with just one aromatic oil burner. Pure evil. What do you want? He repeats in strangulated tones. I told you, I say sternly, like a kindly but bloody scary teacher. Sell the painting and give the proceeds to your charity. It's very important you do that, Simon, and you mustn't forget to have the painting properly valued. And all of that money must go into the charity. You must agree to that today, and the promise must be binding. I'm starting to feel rather guilty at quite how threatening this is coming across. I don't want him fearing for his life and immortal soul for the rest of his days, as if he's been forced into striking a particularly confusing Faustian pact. I soften my tone. Simon, perhaps I've come on a bit strong. Simon snorts and then immediately looks worried in case I punish him for any displays of disrespect. No, 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 I quite understand. You're confused, you're frightened, I imagine you're worried, I'll be back with another demand. But I'm on the side of the angel, Simon, and I promise, after today, you'll never see me again. Nope. He's still petrified. Sod it, I think, and surround myself with a subtle heavenly glow. I start to project images and smells of warmth and comfort into the room. The distant sound of happy Victorian urchins, roast dinners, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, naps, hot chocolate, chips and cheese, that kind of thing. To my relief, the new ambiance seems to work. Simon's face relaxes into mere consternation. I continue concentrating fiercely, mixing a cavalcade of warm sensory experiences into the visual soup surrounding us. Biscuit tins, duvets, cups of tea, gravy boats, snuggly jumpers, Bing Crosby, pork crackling, roast chicken, sprouts. God, I haven't eaten for ages. Simon's nose wrinkles. I get rid of the sprouts. It's because I care so much about the animals, Simon, I continue, clasping my hands together angelically. Gentle flurries of snowflakes and cherry blossoms surround us. I care about them all, the poor little animals, the big ones, the tasty ones, the disgusting ones, all the animals. Simon looks much calmer, thank God. 
Bing croons in the background, and Simon sways on his feet, his eyelids droop. Dress is nice. He moves sleepily. Maybe I can undo some of the damage this little episode might have inflicted. So I'm going to leave soon, I coo, and you're going to have a lovely nap. Simon nods. I start edging towards him. You'll dream of the nice lady who gave you the painting, I sing song, gently taking his elbow. He doesn't flinch, though he looks a little befuddled. She was so ancient and frail, but also determined and dignified. He allows me to guide him towards the sofa, where I give him a little shove to make him lie down. Simon thuds onto the sofa in an awkward crouch, facing a cushioned bum in the air. Whoops, may have pushed a little forcefully. I rearrange him and continue planting suggestions, making it up as I go along. You've noticed the little old lady at almost every lecture on ugly animals you've ever given. She's a big fan. Sadly, she's leaving the country to live in Australia with her daughter. Before she goes, she wanted to give you the painting. Simon looks up at me like a child on the brink of sleep. She told you it was worth upwards of five million pounds and that she wanted every penny of that to go to your charity. His eyelids are half shut now. You intend to do that for her as soon as possible. Tomorrow, in fact. Simon nods his head again, a small frown creasing his forehead. As soon as the money hits the ugly animal bank account, a profound sense of satisfaction will wash all over you. You've done the right thing. The mysterious old lady will be very pleased. His eyes flutter shut and his lips part slightly, his breathing deep and slow. Also, I add, feeling, you know, sort of generous. You will feel inspired to give up any bad habits you may have, but not to the point that you become pious and irritating to others. Um, I rack my brains for more. I feel like he deserves a few extra benefits after all the trauma. You will also have bright eyes and glossy hair and excellent hand-eye coordination, I conclude. Simon begins to snore, and I look up, catching Derek's eye. He looks a little lost, as if he daren't hope for a happy ending anymore. We wait a second to see if Simon stirs, and then I creak upright from where I was bent over his prone form and start to tiptoe out, giving the selenodon a little pat as I pass, and then glance back one final time. Perhaps I'm becoming blinded by power, but I can't help but think that in the moment before I close the door, Simon's hair gleams with an unnatural luster in a shaft of heavenly sunlight. End of the chapter. There we go. Wow, wow, it's very exciting, that it one. All those, and, all those animals coming to life. Oh, yes, and the selenodon, you know, unchanged for millions of years. That's right, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. So it didn't have to evolve because it was so successful. And then guess what? What happened? It's now on the verge of extinction. And do you know why? Why? Domestic cats. Oh, no. Yes. It was literally... This animal was literally around since the dinosaurs. You can look this up. It's all true. And now the cats are getting it. Yes, and all it took was a bloody tabby or two to almost wipe the thing off the face of the earth. Doesn't doesn't the Selenodon have some extraordinary powers? Oh, it's amazing. Well, it's... uh, I believe... What is it? It's a mammal, but... It, it is a, it's a venomous mammal. Oh, that's it. It's the only venomous mammal. But the venom doesn't kill you. It just makes you slightly depressed. That's right. It's actually true. What an extraordinary creature that is. It is, isn't? and it's, uh, it has a goaty odour. Yes. And it doesn't run in a straight line. It runs in a sort of drunken zigzag. Yes. And it's extraordinarily unappealing, isn't it? It's very ugly little, little it's, thing. It's, yes, there's no way you could see it as cute. But it didn't need to be. It was incredibly successful. Yes, why so would those bloody cats who yeah. are cute, but they're little bastards. Yes. 
porcelain and all. But anyway, Simon has a podcast uh, where he talks about ugly animals, doesn't oh, yes, he? And he other does. things as well. He's he's one of these science bonds. He's got a lot of, um, uh, what do you call them? Uh, scientific friends. And that's it. Opinions. Friends, I always forget. Friends, that's the word you're looking that for. That concept. Yes, so do check that out. I can't remember what it's called, but look up Simon. It's, it's called Level Up Human. Oh, that's it. That's what it's called. And yes. it's all about becoming a more evolved human being in a, quite a literal fashion. Like, should we have gills, that kind of thing. Yes, it's fascinating. It is. It's, and, it's and very entertaining. I believe that uh, someone or other might have done the music for that podcast as well. Who's that then? Uh, well, it, it was me. Was it? Yes, it was. I did it. Is he still using it? Yes, I think so. Good heavens. Well, there we go. So go and check that out. There we go. Generously promoting other podcasts. Even though they've got my music on it. <laughs> yes, that's true. There's always a little bit of self-interest in everything we do. Yes. All right. Okay, so that was quite a long one. Hopefully we haven't driven more people away. Our numbers are very up and down, aren't they, Bernard? <laughs> they are somewhat. Very, very up and down. Like, uh, people dip in at strange points. They don't listen to the early ones. They obviously don't have a clue what's going on. One of then... the middle chapters has something like three times the number of downloads as the one before it. It's so weird because we're not even calling them by exciting names. We're not like, oh, chapter whatever, yeah, chapter this is where it gets kit- exciting. Chapter and boobs and explosions. We're yes, not calling exactly. it that. Yes, no, it's just called chapter one, two, three, four, five, six. It really couldn't be any clearer. It couldn't, and yet people still dip in at chapter nine. I don't know. Anyway, so I, I can't I can't understand people. I can't predict them. Oh, no, I mean, I can, because that's my job. Yes, but you can try and help them. I can. I can only do so much, which isn't much, and it's only if I can be bothered to do it. All right, uh, tune in next time. Bye-bye now. Madame Magenta was created and performed by Lindsay Sharman, with Lawrence Owen as Bernard. Music and sound design by Lawrence Owen. Artwork was by Claire Lafar. You can follow Madame Magenta on Twitter at Madame Magenta UK. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can support it by going to coffee.com forward slash longcatmedia. That's ko-fi.com forward slash longcatmedia. For more information about this podcast, as well as our flagship drama series, Mockery Manor, please visit longcatmedia.com. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Hi, folks. Let me see if I can sum up Midnight Burger in about 25 seconds. Really, big monster? Zero irony. Pardon me, Gloria. Might my husband and I have a word? The radio is talking to me. So this is how it ends. Eaten by wolves in space. There's a pocket dimension in the deep freeze. This is the stupidest dystopia we've ever been to. What the hell is that? Because you're having a cigarette? In 415 million BC? Where are we? Space? Can you narrow that down? The bad part? Ava. Yeah, that didn't work at all. At the nexus of all things, there is a diner. Look for Midnight Burger on your favorite podcasting app or just go to weopenat6.com.